Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This week's guest on Deconstructed is Mackenzie Fierston, who was the subject of a recent story in The New Yorker. The article by reporter Rachel Aviv was called How an Ivy League School Turned Against a Student, and it tells the story of an extraordinary battle between McKenzie and the University of Pennsylvania. If you haven't read the story yet, I highly recommend pausing this and giving it a read first, because I try not to go over too much of the same territory in my interview with her. But the outline of the story is this. Mackenzie was raised in a wealthy St. Louis suburb by a single mother who was repeatedly abusive, according to two state agencies. Her junior year at Whitfield, a prestigious prep school, Mackenzie showed up to school one day in a terrible state. Her history teacher described the incident this way, quote, she showed up at my classroom door with a bloodied and battered face and then fainted. Mackenzie was hospitalized. In the New Yorker piece, a nurse assigned to Mackenzie is quoted as saying, quote, she had two black eyes and her hair was full of blood. She had bruises all over her body in different stages of healing, an obvious sign of child abuse, unquote. Mackenzie told the police her mother had pushed her down the stairs and struck her in the face. Her mother had no explanation for the injuries other than saying perhaps she had done it to herself. Her mother was arrested and charged with abuse, and Mackenzie went into foster care. The mother hired a high-powered attorney and engaged in a local campaign to discredit Mackenzie. The prosecutor eventually dropped the charges, and the arrest record was expunged. The Department of Social Services substantiated McKenzie's allegations, as did the Missouri Child Abuse and Neglect Review Board, which is an independent state panel. Her mother's name was entered into a registry of abusers. She petitioned the court and was able to successfully have her name removed, with the judge ruling that there wasn't enough evidence to substantiate the abuse allegations, specifically saying, quote, while it is possible that petitioner was the cause of the alleged injuries, the court cannot make that finding by a preponderance of the evidence based on the evidence presented, unquote. Mackenzie, for her part, was accepted to the University of Pennsylvania and in her sophomore year won a Rhodes Scholarship, but her mother wasn't finished with her. An article in the Philadelphia Inquirer erroneously wrote that she had grown up poor. The reporter had assumed, based on her status as a Figley student, which stands for first-generation low-income, that she had been poor her entire life. But it doesn't mean you were always low-income, just that you are now. Within days of the article being published, the university's general counsel was in touch with Mackenzie's mother. Mackenzie's critics even began nitpicking how much blood was in her hair while she was in the intensive care unit. Ultimately, she lost her Rhodes Scholarship and Penn withheld her master's degree, demanding a letter of apology. I reached out to the University of Pennsylvania and also Provost Beth Winkelstein and General Counsel Wendy White for a response, as well as to Mackenzie's biological mother. They didn't respond, though Mackenzie's biological mother has denied the allegations of abuse. The university, in its response to Mackenzie's lawsuit, referred to Mackenzie's mother as, quote, an accomplished physician and claimed that a court had found her allegations not to be credible. The university writes, quote, after those who knew Fierston raised questions about her story, it was investigated not just once, but several times and not just by Penn faculty and staff, but also the Rhodes Trust. Those investigations revealed that for the first 17 years of her life, Fierston was raised by her mother, Dr. Carrie Morrison, an accomplished physician. Fierston grew up in a wealthy community and attended an elite private school in a St. Louis suburb. She entered foster care only at the age of 17 after making a complaint of abuse against Dr. Morrison, a complaint that a court later found not to be credible. Every objective and careful reviewer of the facts in this case, including the Rhodes Trust, Penn's Office of Student Conduct, a faculty committee from Fierston's graduate school at Penn, and a hearing panel consisting of faculty and students from other Penn schools concluded that Fierston had not been truthful, unquote. In any event, the University of Oxford, where Mackenzie's doing her PhD, has remained supportive, and in the wake of the New Yorker investigation and the resulting protests from students and faculty, Penn lifted the hold on her degree. Mackenzie is currently suing the university. Mackenzie, welcome to Deconstructed. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And so, like I mentioned earlier, I don't want to go over too much of the the history that led up to your your battle with Penn and with the with the Rhodes Trust, because you know people can find that in the 
New Yorker article that came out recently. You went over that at you know some pretty decent length in Katie Couric's podcast and a recent interview there. I think this is a conversation not necessarily for people who are still in question about what happened here. Right. Instead, I want to talk more about what this says about the system. That's that something like this, something so seemingly irrational could be produced by this system and actually could be predicted to be produced by this system in some ways. And so I wanted to start with where things really started to unravel for you. And I, I'm curious where you would pinpoint it, but I would guess that it's the Philadelphia Inquirer story that started with an incorrect lead that said Mackenzie Fierston grew up poor, something very close to that. Or do you think that do you think that the wheels were already in motion before that? I think you're right. That is when I would trace it trace it back to uh, in that you know evening that the article came out is when I got a call from the reporter saying, you know, I got this anonymous email that said X, Y, Z, and I want to let you know. And we had a fairly lengthy conversation just kind of going through the ins and outs of my childhood and left it at, you know, she was like, okay, I'm, you know, I understand now. And, you know, I'm just going to leave this. Um, and I kind of felt like things were resolved until the next week when there was more, uh, more downhill event. Mm-hmm. Right. And how much confidence do you have that that anonymous complainer was Carrie, your biological mother? You know, I honestly don't know. Uh, my understanding is there was two anonymous emails. One of them, I, to me, felt pretty clear that it was probably from someone in my biological family because it had you know, photos of me, what it had like very specific information that very few people would have, you know, and I don't think many people would have like random childhood photos of me. So to cut into the interview here real quick, I wanted to add that Mackenzie is referring to a letter sent to the Rhodes Trust in December, 2020. The Inquirer story came out in November, 2020. The New Yorker reported it was written, quote, by an anonymous sender who displayed a great deal of familiarity with Mackenzie's childhood that showed Mackenzie engaging in typical upper-middle-class childhood activities like horseback riding and going to the beach, unquote. All right, back to the interview. Um, So, you know, to me, it was pretty clear that it likely came from them. But, you know, I, I guess I can't say for sure. Right. And we do know for sure that she was in touch with the university. That's not in question. And that's actually one of the things that if there was any doubt whatsoever about this story, in some ways, it was settled by that. In other words, if if you are a parent who says that you are wishing your daughter well, and you're telling the authorities that she's just mentally ill, and it's just a really, really sad and tragic case that she's making up all of these allegations of abuse and throwing herself downstairs and beating herself up all all for cries for help, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You wouldn't then also pursue a multi-year long effort to destroy her life. Right. Like those, those two things don't fit together. And so the fact that she's continued kind of pursuing you, to me, kind of demonstrates the entire case. It didn't, though, to the University of Pennsylvania. So they heard from her and immediately they call you into a meeting with the deputy provost at the time, Beth Winkelstein, Mm -hmm. who is, I believe now, the acting provost. Yes. Um, So what was that meeting like? Uh, just a quick, you know, circling back, I'm, I'm actually not sure if it was her who first reached out or if it was general counsel Wendy White, because I later found out that they had a phone call about 36 hours after the article came out and seemed to talk pretty extensively. And then there were a lot of emails that happened. So I'm not sure if it was Penn who reached out to her or vice versa, which I think is a also an important question in, in all of this. Right. But yeah, that I guess just one one point of clarification that I, re- I recently in the last few months just found out about that because I had assumed it was her. Interesting. Yeah. So yes, uh, like you said, I was called into a meeting. This was about a week after and I was, you know, suspected that it was about this anonymous email and I asked in the email exchange, you know, is this about the anonymous email? And I didn't get an answer. And I asked again 
and just said, you know, I've had different experiences of like harassment for the last four years at Penn. You're welcome to talk to Penn Police or their Division of Special Services or the Women's Center or, you know, any program that I've been involved in or people that have been involved in supporting me who can collaborate this. And I was actually really nervous about doing any press for this reason. And I like haven't been on any of the Penn websites. Like I just haven't wanted really there to be a lot of information about me publicly because I just wanted to go on with my life and, you know, live it. But I got a bit of pressure from Penn to do that. So I was like, okay, fine. But I agreed to come into this Zoom meeting and this was the last day of November, 2020. And I brought my sort of mentor with me. I didn't really know what it was going to be, but I feel like it's always good to have someone with you. And we entered the meeting and it was immediately felt really hostile to me. It was provost now, provost Beth Winklestein, told this person, you know, I know you're here as a supporter for Mackenzie, but you cannot speak. If you speak, I'm going to disconnect you from the call. And Mackenzie's the only one who's allowed to answer these questions. We need to stay on task. And I know, you know, I told them I only have a half hour because I'm working, I'm in class, and we're going to go through all of this. And then it just launched into the first half being kind of a line by line it felt like interrogation of my applications and like, why are you considered an independent student? Who are your biological family? What foster family were you with in X, you know, an XYZ year? How old were you when you were applying to college? Which, you know, just like some basic questions and then a lot of detailed questions to my application. And then it very quickly turned to very specific questions about different instances of abuse And it became pretty clear to me that they had spoken to Carrie and or seen medical records. Uh, But it was just kind of this rapid fire of, if we look at your medical records, are we going to see you had broken ribs and severe facial injuries? What happened the night you went to foster care? How did you get to school? How long were you in the hospital? Why were you in the hospital that long? What happened after you went out of the hospital? Was there, you know, abuse before this? And I don't remember all the questions, but it was a really intense rapid fire of, you know, really difficult and challenging questions. Um, And I was having flashbacks to, you know, like cross-examinations and depositions I'd given about this, which later made sense because we found out that Wendy White had spoken with one of Carrie's defense lawyers. So makes makes some sense that they were very similar questions. So one of the questions that you mentioned that they asked was about your essay, uh, which, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it begins saying something along the lines of, you you know, you're in the hospital, you looked in the mirror, and you couldn't, you couldn't recognize yourself, couldn't recognize your features. To me, it seems like any reader of the English language would read that in a literary sense. Right. Of, you know, it's, it's self-exploration, self-doubt, trauma. Like it's not, and it's not, no offense, it's not like the most profound no. <laughs> kind of ins- yeah. Insight. Like, is is that what sent you into like a surreal state? Because that these processes become Kafka esque very quickly, mm-hmm. and that that feels like one of them, where it feels like the system is willfully misunderstanding reality in order to bend it yeah. in their direction. That was my personal statement. I wrote a poem about the actual, you know, what the message was, which is so cheesy and I'm cringing at my 17-year-old self, but it was about the healing power of gratitude. And it started with, you know, this paragraph and a half of being waking up in the hospital. And then, like you said, looking at my face, not recognizing myself and kind of describing what I felt like and what the room looked like. And then my I remembered that my teacher had told me to write a gratitude list. And at the time I was like, why, what, <laughs> like, why would I do that? Uh, my life is over. I'm in the hospital. Like I'm at rock bottom and I decided to do it because I felt like I had nothing to lose. And it made, ended up making gratitude lists every day for years. And it really was a very healing experience for me. So that was what the actual poem and personal statement was about. But it did open with these kind of like literary elements of what I was feeling like and, you know, the experience I was having in that, those moments. 
And, and how much did she challenge your medical condition after that beating? She, she definitely asked some questions about it. I, you know, it was more, I think, in the times after, uh, in the months after where there, you know, I, I ended up like giving different medical records and like all these things to corroborate my account. But there were a few questions of, that were very specific to what had happened. And, in, and I just want to read this for people. In the New Yorker article, one teacher had written, quote, she showed up at my classroom door with a bloodied and battered face and then fainted. Yes. And then uh, Rachel Aviv, the reporter, also quotes Sherry McLean, who was a, a nurse who was assigned to you. She said, quote, she had two black eyes and her hair was full of blood. She had bruises all over her body in different stages of healing, an obvious sign of child abuse, unquote. And so... Mackenzie, you and I were just talking offline, and you had mentioned uh, that you actually made a transcript of your interview with Deputy Provost Winkelstein uh, shortly after the conversation. Uh, anything, anything interesting in that that you that you noticed? And, and th- did you find this after the uh, New Yorker article was published? No, I found it before. So uh, Rachel had it, um, and you know, Penn disputed it. Um, and I don't remember exactly what their statement was, but they disputed it and I think said something along the lines of there were things missing and um, it was distorted. And it's funny because it just made me so frustrated. I actually went back and read it and it's almost, if you read it aloud, it's almost exactly the length of the phone call. So I'm not sure how much could have been missing, uh, <laughs> but um it was just, it's interesting because, you know, most of the questions are about these applications and then the the second half is when it turns to these questions of of the abuse and did you report what was going on to your school and what happened after that and after you talked to the school how did you get to school the next morning what happened the night before uh, why you know did you go into foster care if we review your medical records are we going to see you had broken ribs and facial injuries um, and so that was when it really transitioned was that la- the second half of it into these really intimate questions about my abuse until the point where I was sobbing and couldn't answer the questions anymore. Anything in particular jump out at you after having read back over that transcript? I mean, part of it is honestly like it's looking at, uh, cause we just wanted to be as thorough as possible. Like when, even when I was, you know, crying and then I was crying and taking breaths uh, and it's striking to see just the continued, like continuing to push of like what happened. Now I'm sobbing, I'm like hyperventilating. And the staff member interrupted and said, can we have an estimate of how much time is left? No, I can't, we're close to done. I can't say how many questions were left and we're close to done. Um, And, you know, the staff member saying like, I understand, can you please give Mackenzie an estimate of how many questions are left and just, you know, Provost Deputy Provost Winklestein saying, no, I said, we're almost done. That's why I'm pausing to let her catch her breath. Um, and it, I think it's striking to read that back and just see how clearly distressed and, and distraught I was and continuing to push on that series of questions about, a, you know, really traumatic experience. Penn officials, of course, have said the interview was appropriate. And so was it in a later in a different conversation where they asked about that line in the essay about not being able to recognize yourself? Or is there some allusion to that in the transcript that you found? Because no, so, that really was one of the ones that blew my mind. Yeah. So they didn't ask about that in this meeting. So that was, I think, later on that that specific line came into question. Uh, in the transcript I wrote, it was really just focused on like what happened the night you went into foster care are we going to see these injuries and sort of the chain of events that happened leading into foster care like questioning how much blood enough blood enough bruises like that sort of thing uh so those questions really came later uh there was yes disagreement because i said there was blood in my hair in the essay they said there wasn't there wasn't enough blood or there wasn't blood or something, even though I had, again, written statements from two ICU nurses who took care of me saying, yes, there was blood, there's photographs, uh, and there's 
still was the argument of like there wasn't enough blood or uh, or you know your face wasn't so distorted you could couldn't tell who you were and like you said like yes obviously I was looking in a mirror and I knew I was looking in a mirror so yes I know that is me <laughs> uh, but it was you know in the sense of like I didn't recognize myself both because I was beaten and you know my face was swollen and whatever and I felt like at rock bottom and, and broken. Uh, so th- those questions came like later on and were really a part of the initial interrogation. I want to talk about where you think that pushback came from. I have some of my own theories, but I want to hear yours. As you've had time to sort through this, like, what do you think was, was driving Penn to go through this process, which they had to know at some level would cost them? And so they had to see some benefit to them in doing this. It's hard to say. There were so many, there are, I guess, so many moving pieces. You know, I'm a part of a wrongful death lawsuit that was filed in August 2020. And I was the one who uncovered my classmate's death. Uh, talk, talk just a little bit about that, uh, that case. Yeah. So that people have the background there. The background, yeah. I So I myself had a seizure in the basement of my grad school in January 2020, and it took over an hour to get me out of the basement because they couldn't fit a stretcher or a backboard down the stairs or the elevator. And also there was a delay in getting the pen police there because they didn't know where the building was. Then the Philly paramedics couldn't figure out how to get to the building. And then they couldn't get me out. Again, this is obviously secondhand because I was unconscious. So these are all things I've learned. (laughs) I learned after the fact. But once I got out of the hospital and I learned that information, I remembered that uh, a classmate had died in the same basement about 16 months earlier. And I didn't really know any information except for that, you know, he had had a medical emergency in class and then been pronounced dead at the hospital. But I just had... A bad feeling and I started to try to find more information and I started interviewing people who were in the class where he died and who were in nearby classes where he died who knew him and paramedics who were at you know pen paramedics and just as many people as I could and it became pretty clear to me that there had been a very similar delay in his care but even worse dynamics. Uh, There's not cell phone reception in the basement. So the students had had to form a human chain from the first floor down to the basement where all our classes are to relay instructions from the paramedics, the Philadelphia paramedics, to the professor who was, my understanding, performing CPR. And it was a very similar situation where it took everyone a long time to get to the building. There was a lot of chaos. It seemed like there was a lack of internal emergency protocols within our grad school, the School of Social Policy and Practice. And then again, there was trouble getting him out of the basement. You know, I wasn't there for all of this, but after I went through all these interviews, that was my conclusion. And I ended up reaching out to his widow and sending her, I found her on Facebook uh, and sent her a message just to say, you know, I think I found some information. Maybe you already have it. Like I had no idea, you know, what she already knew. And she ended up responding like right away and asked to get on a phone call. And we spoke for a long time and I went through everything I had found. And she was shocked. She didn't know any of the circumstances of his death. Uh, She thought that he had been like very quickly removed from the building. She didn't even know what building he had died in. She didn't know he was in the basement. Penn didn't respond to a request for comment, but in its response to McKenzie's lawsuit, they write, quote, Penn denies that the Castor building and its basement are inaccessible and that issues relating to access caused or contributed to Fearston's alleged injuries or the death of Cameron Driver, unquote. So that's the background of of him. And, you know, I turned over all this information to his widow. And then she hired um, a law firm. And eventually they were doing their own investigation for several months. I, you know, tried to help as much as I could. I took photos of 
the building and like sent, you know, sent it to them and it was connecting them with different people and in my who were in my class, who were in his class. And eventually they filed a big wrongful death lawsuit in August 2020. And so you're becoming rather inconvenient to the university at that point. Yes. I would assume which plays into the way that universities and elite structures think of diversity, I think. Not as something that is, you know, for the benefit of the McKenzie's, the people who are being brought into the school, but actually for the benefit of the university itself, its image, but and also for the students. Like they want to curate a diverse experience for their well-off students so that they can say that they had this diverse experience in college right or in in graduate school like it's it's they and they'll they'll openly talk about this and i think it's true i think they do have a richer experience if they have more diversity around them but that is more the point right rather than it being for the purpose of benefiting the students themselves Uh, and so yes if the student then is no longer useful i could imagine it turning but i also think it has something to do with the way that we understand poverty Mm -hmm. i think for a lot of us we have to sort of other poverty and abuse and put it in a box partly to protect ourselves because you know poverty and abuse are so pervasive in society and in particularly in a country that has such a minimal social safety net and has so much violence yeah you know all of us no matter what our situation are not completely safe from it and i think psychologically one way people feel safer about it is to say no that happens to other people and those other people are kind of like the orphans that we think of in dickensian novels right or or whatever our kind of contemporary version of it is because then then you can't you can't think that it could be you yeah uh and so if it's a a well-educated white girl from a private school that's way too close to home for a lot of these elites. Yes. And do you know Linda Torado? Do you do you, have you ever heard of her her such her case? No, I'm not familiar with her. She about 10 years ago, she wrote a a comment, I think on a Gawker post or something like that that we ended up then republishing as an essay at the Huffington Post mm-hmm. about and it was about her life in poverty and it went viral. Millions of people read it extremely well-written piece. And she had gone to a private school growing up. She had had a you know, fairly upper middle class life, yet was you know working at multiple fast food restaurants and barely getting by. And she quickly got interest of, of a book deal because she was obviously such a great writer. And then instantly kind of people started picking her story apart. Yeah. And one, and one of the main things they pointed to was that she had gone to this private school as, <laughs> as a kid. And it felt very similar that, well, this can't be real because that's not how, that's not how we understand poverty. Like you have a good education and you're clearly smart. And if those things are true and you're also struggling in poverty, then something is deeply wrong with the system. And we can't acknowledge that. So we then have to pick apart the other pieces of it and say that, well, this, this just can't be real. I'm curious, having dealt with so many people along the way who are questioning your story, like how do you, how do you feel like the boxes play into this? And is it, is it somewhat of a kind of defense mechanism that, that people deploy to protect themselves? Absolutely. I do think that it is a huge defense mechanism that people deploy and you know, in this case, almost everyone who was involved uh, in the university administration are, you know, upper middle class or very wealthy, highly academically educated white women. And now they have to face the fact that someone who looks like them, who shares all these identities with them, could be the source of all of this harm. And, you know, that dynamic, I would say, probably played a big part in all of this. And back in, you know, high school, that was a similar thing. Like I was in this private school with a lot of upper middle class or wealthy white students. And it was also, you know, the community was kind of divided and some people were very much on my side. Some people were very much, I think, in that sort of cognitive dissonance of this can't be true because if it can, 
then I'm in danger. So this could happen to me. Uh, this can happen to someone in my community. And I also think we have this racist and classist notion of who can be an abuser or who can cause harm. And we have this idea, you know, of what a person looks like who commits a crime or who gets arrested for child abuse. And that is not what my my biological family did not fit those stereotypes. And I think that was really hard for people to process. Right. And you saw that playing out right away, right? And when you're biological mother was first arrested. What were the response from the readers of the paper? Yeah, I remember. So yes, an article came out uh, in the local paper saying that she had been arrested. And I ended up reading the comments and the comments were just horrendous. It was, you know, she's a spoiled little brat. She ruined her mom's career and many more uh, vicious sentiments. And it just felt pretty devastating to me because I, you know, for so long I had hit everything. I'd been so ashamed and I already felt so much guilt in coming forward then. And then to be so unanimously disbelieved. And at that point, you know, this article was like a paragraph and a half. It didn't have any facts of the case. It was literally just like she was arrested and her daughter's hospitalized and so, it, you know, just immediate reaction was like, there's no way she's lying. She's spoiled brat, you know, this, that and the other, which looking back, you know, at the time, I just felt absolutely horrible. Uh, I was like a teenager and I was in the hospital and, you know, I didn't have any perspective. But now looking back and rereading that article in the last year and seeing that it virtually had no information, you know, for all the readers could have known it could have there could have been a videotape of it happening you know but they just assumed there's no way that it could have happened ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And so when you applied for uh, your master's in, in in social work or sociology social work so you applied for your master's in social work and you and there was a question of whether to to check the what i've learned is called the figley box first generation uh, low income yes um first of all is that that's that's one box or is that so, so separate two yeah. into one uh so normally the term figley it's just an umbrella term for both uh, but in this ASP application, they had two questions, which are to determine financial aid. So one question was, are you from a low-income family? And then the other question was, are you the first in your family to attend college? So they had separated it in that case. And because you were practically not just low-income, practically no income, other than the jobs that you were working, that one, nobody has complained about the low-income, right? Is that, am I right about that? At first, there was actually, there was contention. And then throughout the now a year and a half process of different sort of invented processes that happened, eventually it was, the university was like, okay, I guess she's low income. Yes, like she she was an independent student when she applied, fine. And then the focus shifted to the second box. Interesting. The fact that they even challenged that really does expose a lot of what's going on here because I assume in their mind they're saying, well, she went to this private school. She had a nice house. Like her 
her mom probably drove a nice car. Maybe you even drove a decent car. So therefore, that doesn't fit their understanding of low income, despite the fact that you know your, your mother was no longer your legal guardian, you're a ward of the state. It's just so obviously that you fit the criteria for low income, but it seems like they feel like you don't fit it in the spirit of how they want it. You didn't grow up in crumbling projects your entire exactly. life. Yeah. And did they say anything along those lines that, is, is that just an interpretation or did they say anything that suggested to you that the fact that you had gone to a private school and grown up in an upper middle class situation meant that you could never at any point consider yourself low income? You know, so it was, I believe the first people who said that was the Rhodes Trust uh, and they released this, you know, quote unquote report in April of 2021 with their sort of findings, which, you know, they had done their own investigation, again, quotes on investigation. And then I had submitted like over a hundred pages of, of documents to them, uh, medical records, records from child welfare services, corroborating letters from detectives and lawyers and elementary, middle and high school teachers, childhood friends, professors, you know, basically everyone who had known me. I think there was almost 30 of those letters, again, very similar statements to who had given statements in the past to corroborate my abuse, as well as leaders in the Figley community, you know, saying like, yes, we started this community, we started, you know, building this, and this is exactly who we built it for. And they were the ones, I believe, and this is public now because Penn attached it to their their response to the lawsuit I filed. And I believe they were the first ones to mention that I had gone to private school and that were questioning if I was low income. Um, and the theme of private school definitely came up many times over the course of mm-hmm. the last year and a half. And with that, like you said, sort of notion of like, well, there's no way that, you know, you went to private school and all of this could have still happened or that you could be low income now. And this idea that socioeconomic status is, you know, permanent. Right. Which, as I'm sure you've learned since, is a complete and fundamental misunderstanding of poverty in America. Like, I don't have the precise statistics in front of me, but a, you know, if, if you ask people to guess at the number of people who you know, will will experience, say, two years of poverty in their life, people will miss it by magnitudes. Like it's it's upwards of, it's practically half of Americans yeah. or more will experience, you know, some significant amount of time in poverty. That's the reality of it. But we don't want to think of it that way. We want to think of it, you know, if you were ever rich, you're always rich. If you're ever poor, you're always poor. And so that's the that's the low income box then the first generation box i want to read from the new yorker article again it says the website of pen first plus a university program founded in 2018 to support figley students defines quote first generation broadly including students who have a quote strained or limited relationship with a parent who has graduated from college this definition resembles the one used in the federal higher education act which says that first-generation student student status depends on the education level of a parent whom a student, quote, regularly resided with and received support from, unquote. And the New Yorker then adds in parentheses that a Penn spokesperson says, yeah, well, that's not the definition that we use. So how is a person filling out this application supposed to know what definition you're supposed to use? That's a great question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I... You know, that de- so that specific definition um, wasn't, you know, public until 2018. And I was in a kind of unique situation where I applied to grad school um, the beginning of my sophomore year of college because I submatriculated. So I started while I was an undergrad and was taking classes at the same time. But there was another definition that was also along those lines that I fit that was, again, public on the website, our grad school had no, you know, specific definitions or instructions, but I did, you know, have a relationship with the associate director of admissions at the time. I asked specifically about, you know, those boxes and and the answer I got was, again, this was multiple years ago, but it was something along the lines of, you know, I don't think that 
you know, biological parents are relevant to this. If you're an independent student, then you should check yes to both boxes. And when I asked her again, you know, when I was gathering all this evidence in uh, 2020, she gave me the same answer of, I don't believe it's relevant. And, you know, this box isn't relevant to admission, but it's relevant to financial aid and the student should check whatever boxes is going to give them most access to financial aid, which would be yes to both questions. And has has she stuck by that? Like, what does Penn say when you tell them, hey, the the Penn official who helped me fill this out said that these are the categories that I fit? She, to my knowledge, has stuck by that. I think they have said, well, there's different definitions. And the dean, who's the dean of you know the grad school, said, well, that's not our definition. And we have our own specific like grad school definitions. But, you know, those definitions aren't anywhere to be found. They're not on a website. Um, And, you know, so you use what you have, uh, which are the definitions that were already out there. Um, And, you know, honestly, like I've, first generation is never something I've really like identified with fully. You know, I identify with the Figley umbrella term and definitely being a low income student, but I've never really like called myself standalone first generation. But when you're filling out a box where it's yes or no, and there's no information, you know, no like more information or like kind of box, <laughs> um, you know, it's like you're you have to fit yourself in, you know, saying, are you the first in your family to attend? And you're getting instruction from a university official that that's how you're supposed to fill it out. That's what the definition says online. And to me, you know, I'm like, I am a household of one. So I am the only person in my family. So I felt pretty confident. I was like, great. I have like all of these three kind of different <laughs> rationale and, and corroboration. So I didn't even really think about it when I checked it because I felt like I had a lot of, <laughs> a lot of information that backed it up. And what was the first generation community like, community like on campus? So you think called, called Penn First, I believe. And you, it seems like you socially spent a lot of time with them. What what kind of a, a group is that? Yeah, so Penn First is for the whole Figley community. So first generation and or low income, again, is the acronym. And again, people, including Penn administrators, have the perception of like, you know, I think the stereotype. Um, and my friend, Nia Moore, who's a Rhodes Scholar and graduate of Penn, who founded Penn First or co-founded it, had a really great quote in The New Yorker about, you know, we aren't all quote unquote something along the lines of like you know impoverished inner city kids who go to crumbling public schools um, as the wider media portrays us to be and I think that she kind of encompassed a lot of the stereotypes that people and also the pen you know administrators have about what figley students are when reality those of us who are part of the community know that there's so many shapes and sizes of Figley students. Like some students do have a story more like me where they had some kind of separation from their family. Other students, like they, their parents were doctors or lawyers or PhD students in other countries, but then they came here and their degrees, you know, were no longer essentially counted or people who are just first generation and not necessarily low income or people who are low income, but not first generation you know, there's people who span like all different kinds of experiences. And that is part of what felt like it gave me such a home um, is because we had these, you know, sort of underlying shared experiences, but all came from different backgrounds to an extent and all still like supported and accepted one another. And that felt very powerful in in an institution where the overwhelming majority of people are coming from, you know, two parent households, extremely wealthy, like a whole nother level of wealth that I have really ever seen in my life in terms of just like around me, like, you know, the 1% to like the 0.001%. It's a very different lifestyle uh, when I came to Penn and like saw all of these students who were living that life. And so there was like a sense of community and and solidarity amongst us, which was very powerful for me because I just felt so out of place. And the New Yorker article also 
alluded to a, a few things that you had gotten loose with in, in a couple of paragraphs. I don't know if, I can't remember if it was in the Rhodes essay or in, in another essay, uh, that hindsight you would have, you would have tightened up. Like one of them was describing a biological child in a house as another foster child and something about a, a half brother or something. Can you, what, what were those and how were those errors kind of deployed against you? Yeah, it was, you know, things like that where, you know, I kind of simplified all of these foster kids that, you know, you're living with biological family and then you also who have kids, which I would say are foster siblings. And then there's also foster siblings in the sense of, you know, other people who are in the foster care system who you're living with. So, you know, I kind of simplified that in a sentence to make my point of what I wanted to study, which was the foster care to prison pipeline, uh, which is also what I ultimately ended up doing my PhD on uh, and what I just started this year. So that was like what that specific sentence in the New Yorker was referencing is this kind of condensing this group of people into like one sentence. In retrospect, I'm like, I got, I just honestly wish I had never written about those people, but it was kind of one of those things where I was like, okay, I need to make my point. How do I do that in like a succinct way when there's a very short word count and you're trying to fit everyone's experience in? And so I didn't really think about, oh, I need to say this, you know, foster sibling who was in the foster care system. And then there was this other foster sibling who was the biological kid of the foster parents I was staying with (laughs) and spelling it out Mm -hmm. in that way. And so can you talk a little bit about your your research, how much research has been done on the foster care to prison pipeline? Is it as well explored territory as a school to prison pipeline? Or is this something that's been been overlooked? And what what kind of what area of it are you going to explore with your PhD? Yeah, it's a very under-researched field. It's virtually almost an unknown phenomena or, you know, to people who are working in the field, it's certainly known. Uh, but there's been very little research on it, uh, which is partially complicates my my PhD because there's so little to draw upon. Uh, but it was definitely something I, you know, saw happening, sort of this funneling of kids into the from the child welfare to criminal justice system. And then as the you know different internships and then I went to get my master's in social work and all of this happened, I started to see that continue in different capacities while I was in different roles, seeing that theme in this relationship between foster care and the criminal justice system. Uh, So now I'm looking at um, one American city and one English city and comparing the experiences of youth who cross over from the child welfare system to the criminal justice system in both of those cities. And, you know, kind of how like the geopolitical environment and local uh, policies and practices might impact the rate of youth crossing over and their experiences. Then um, it's going to be a qualitative study in just really trying to understand their experiences from their voices, which is something that I often find is missing from research. And what's the difference between the U.S. and English system? So <laughs> I feel like I could go on for hours about that, but there, you know, part of it is like funding decisions like there is more attention to systemic poverty and trying to keep children in their homes to begin with I would say which is you know important because if you can keep kids in their homes then they're not in the system and facing you know that foster to prison pipeline you know and there's also literature that's you know economic literature versus sociology you know, different fields have different perspectives on what that relationship between foster care and child or in the criminal justice system is and what the causes are. But there's definitely, you know, I think a lot of it stems from the current policies and practices of federal and local funding and what kind of programs they're funding for kids. Right. In the U.S., there's much more of pressure to pull kids out of homes, right? As that's that's been my understanding. Absolutely. Of it is that is that your experience with it as well? Yes, definitely. And especially, you know, again, like these stereotypes of black and brown low-income families, the knee-jerk reaction is like, "Oh, well they're, you know, unequipped to be a parent." 
Whereas uh, white parents, ex- a lot of times, <laughs> it is you know much harder. The bar is much higher to remove them from their homes because you know their whiteness or possibly class privilege or whatever identities that they have that might not fit a social worker or a judges or whoever's involved perception of whose kids should be in the foster system. Right. And you experienced that yourself, right? After a after a teacher reported what they felt was abuse, social worker came by and your mother was able to just charm the pants off her and that was that was that was the end of it, right? Yes. Right. Whereas a social worker comes into a poor home and looks around and sees just the normal poverty that that our system has foisted on people and, and says, oh, well, clearly this is somebody that needs to be stripped out of here. How many people kind of fit that category that you interacted with and how many kind of fit closer to your category, not just in, in your own interactions, but also in your research? You know, I, you know, in my personal experience, there were not very many kids who came from a background like me. You know, there's, there were definitely, I'm sure some, um, I, you know, didn't encounter many of them uh, when I was, you know, the two years that I was living in foster families because it, you know, I'm not under any illusion that I'm like the typical foster kid. Like, you know, um, I do think, and that's again, like not because there isn't abuse or neglect going on in these, in families that looked like mine um, or biological families that looked like mine. It's in my opinion, because, you know, they get, overlooked and the kids like me are kind of rendered invisible by the privileges of our biological families um so not that i think at all the population of kids who are in foster care is representative of you know what abuse or neglect and what households they occur or don't occur in i think it's a reflection of the mm-hmm. systemic mm-hmm. prejudices who that we have <laughs> like you said there's also the cultural stereotype of like you know orphan annie and oliver twist of like what these kinds of kids um are supposed to look like that starts so early on and and deep in the i guess culture or media that we encounter that i think really ingrains that into people and so where is your story now you're you're engaged in a lawsuit with penn what about Rhodes? and where where are you at school and when when were you have finished up your PhD. Yeah. So the Rhodes um, Trust ended up after their uh, quote investigation um, and I submitted all that evidence, they ended up still recommending that my scholarship be rescinded. uh, But I had another opportunity to respond to their report, which I absolutely wanted to do. There was, you know, pretty basic errors such as like my name, Uh, my birth name and my birthplace and claiming that I didn't have a sibling, that I wasn't low income, uh, a lot of facts that were pretty easily disputed. And so I was like, of course, I'm going to respond again. And I ultimately didn't end up responding because I got a series of threats from Penn that if I didn't withdraw, that they were going to come after my undergrad degree and launch proceedings to revoke my undergrad degree and never give me my MSW, which I was supposed to graduate with in May 2021. Uh, I have not yet received that diploma. (laughs) Um, And if I didn't withdraw from the roads and sign an NDA. And there was also the added threat of that they would report me to the federal government for wire fraud if I didn't, again, withdraw from the roads and sign this NDA. And Did they make that threat in, in writing or is that? They made that threat to- ver- Like in a phone call? Verbally, or? yes, to my lawyer who communicated it to me. That they would forward charges to the federal government of wire fraud. Yes. That was their suggestion? Yes, that was my understanding. Yeah. They have since claimed that that is not what they, <laughs> that that is not, you know, what they insinuated. I believe my former lawyer mm-hmm. spoke to it in the New Yorker piece, um, and it's mentioned briefly, but that was definitely a driving force for why I decided ultimately to withdraw because I felt like, 
okay, federal prison is no joke. Um, and at the time, I was more in panic mode than like, let me step back and look at this logically. There's absolutely no case. This is an intimidation tactic to try to silence me and sign this NDA and withdraw from the roads um, and agree to whatever terms they wanted me to agree to. Yeah, I mean, you'd been taking loss after loss, despite having the facts on your side. Yes. <laughs> so I can imagine why at some point you'd be like, you know what, I'm just not going to keep taking L's here. Yeah. Like, yeah, I was exhausted. Nothing I have <laughs> is persuasive to these people. Yeah. And that is, I felt very defeated too. Uh, you know, I was like, I don't know. There was also the part of me that was terrified. And then there was the part that felt like I have no idea what's going to convince these people. If I gave them medical records, I gave them photos, forensic photos of me taken in the hospital. I gave them, again, like corroboration from professors of like how I describe myself from leaders in the Figley community. Like it seemed like an airtight case from my perspective. And that's an unfortunate reality. So many survivors experience is not having a lot of documentation. And I'm kind of one of the lucky ones where I had like really expansive and thorough documentation for all the parts of this story. And still it was just like, nope, that's, we don't believe you. And so I did definitely have that kind of like, I have no idea what else is going to convince these people. Uh, and even now, you know, the New Yorker quotes a lot from my childhood journals describing my abuse and Penn still claiming that those are fake journals. And, you know, I'm like, I don't know. There's nothing I can, I don't know what else I could give them that would possibly convince them if their belief is that I, as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, was journaling about my experiences of abuse and hiding it in an air vent. And it was actually secretly all a plan to like accuse my mother of abuse um, and go into foster care so I could have a sad story. Like that would have to be, you know, the rationale that they would have for those childhood journals to be faked. Uh, and I think I just share that because I think it's a powerful example of if that if that is as far as they're going to go when there's literal, you know, documentation from like child me and that accusing me of, of that being faked, I, I really am like, I don't know, short of like a video montage of instances of abuse from six to 16, what would convince them? Well, M Mackenzie, you know, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your story. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad that people are having the kinds of systemic discussions that are so key to all of this. That was Mackenzie Fierston, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Intercepted as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, 
turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.